This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Friday, May 6th, 2022. I'm Guy Benson. This is the Guy Benson Show. Welcome in, everyone. Happy Friday. I'm Guy Benson, political editor at townhall.com and a Fox News contributor and host of this program every weekday from 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time. If you can't listen as we air, although we recommend that, of course, through our affiliates on the live stream, Fox Nation, Lots of ways to get us live, including odyssey.com, our, pod, our partners rather there, A-U-D-A-C-Y.com. There's the podcast as the other alternative, which is on demand when the show is over. It is also completely free of charge. GuyBensonShow.com. That's our website, GuyBensonShow.com. Again, podcast free and at your fingertips. A programming note in my capacity as a Fox News contributor, I will be co-hosting the Big Show, Saturday and Sunday this weekend. That's at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. There's a panel of us. It's kind of like The Five in that it's a panel show at 5 p.m. Eastern on Fox News Channel, but it's not called The Five. It's called The Big Show, and it's a fun panel this weekend. Hope to see you there. Maybe you can set your DVRs if you're unavailable to watch as we air, but that's 5 p.m. Saturday and Sunday. Here on the radio. This is what we have in store for you on this last day of the broadcast week. Peter Ducey, White House correspondent here at Fox News. He is going to join us later on this hour. Quite a lot to get to with him. Also, to start off our next hour, just about an hour from right now, Dr. Mark Siegel, one of our on-air doctors here at Fox. Some updates on COVID, including some restrictions now on the J&J, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, due to a rare blood clot issue How concerned should people be about that? We'll ask Dr. Siegel about that and a few other related topics. Also in our middle hour, 4 p.m. Eastern hour, former U.S. Attorney General Bill Barr will be back here on the show. A number of things to pick his brain about. And then in the happy hour, our final hour, just after 5 p.m. Eastern, Kat Timpf, our friend, will be here. It's Fridays with Kat on The Guy Benson Show. And we begin today, as we have for the last number of days since Tuesday on this show, with another discussion, a conversation about abortion, which is not something that I exactly relish. It is not a happy topic. It is often, you know, we're told, oh, don't talk about that type of thing in polite company. Don't do that at dinner. Religion and politics stay away. I mean, of course, we're a political talk show, but even in this realm, focusing on such an intensely personal and fraught issue, it's not something that we, you know, jump out of our boots to talk about on a regular basis, even though I think it's a very important issue. It's one 
that I have strong feelings about that I've tried to convey in a respectful and polite and persuasive and compelling way this week because this topic is right in the middle of the political discourse because of, of course, everything that we've seen happen with the leak at the Supreme Court, etc. What I would like to specifically talk about in this context on this show is what the Democratic Party has now proposed on Roe versus Wade, abortion policy, and federal legislation. Because it would appear, again, it's not a done deal until the opinion is in fact rendered, but it would appear, based on a document that we know has been authenticated by the Chief Justice, that the court is going to overrule the existing Roe and Casey precedents on abortion, which will allow, just in terms of practicality, states to make decisions on their own abortion policies. It will not mean that abortion is illegal across the board in America. A lot of people seem to believe that misperception, a misperception that has been fed deliberately, you might even call it misinformation, to use a popular term these days. The reason that Roe versus Wade polls well is because people think that Roe going away is tantamount to a blanket ban on all abortions in America, which isn't true. There will be completely liberal, permissive laws in a lot of states. There will be much more restrictive laws in another group of states, and then there'll be others that fall somewhere in the middle, which is where most Americans are. I saw a poll from YouGov that Tim Carney was writing about at the Washington Examiner. And the poll asked people about where the line should be for abortion bans. The Mississippi law, which is the law in question in this current Supreme Court case called Dobbs, the Mississippi law bans most abortions after 15 weeks, which, as I keep saying, is very much in the mainstream here in America and very much in the mainstream abroad. It is not a global outlier. It is globally typical, as a matter of fact. What's a global outlier is allowing elective abortions after 20 weeks, which we still do in a lot of places in this country. Only seven countries in the world allow that because it's barbaric. Unfortunately, for now, we're one of them. But the 15-week ban in Mississippi, that was one of multiple options given to the American people by this uh, YouGov survey in the process of the survey. And wouldn't you know it that nearly two out of three Americans, it was 63 percent of Americans believe that the 15-week ban is – an acceptable or good policy or the right place to draw the line or prior to that, right? So 63% of Americans said 15 weeks at the latest with a majority of Americans saying that the cutoff should be sooner, 12 weeks or six weeks or conception. When you add up all of those options, you get 63% of the country and only about 30% of Americans believe that the Mississippi law 15 weeks is too conservative or too restrictive. So it's more than a two-to-one margin on this question, using the Mississippi law as the cutoff, and yet so much of the coverage and so much of the social media discourse, if you can call it, would suggest, I think, to someone who didn't know better that the opposite was true. I know they talk about radical extremists, and they use that term all the time 
to describe pro-life people or people who believe that Roe was wrongly decided or what have you. But in fact, the people who are the actual extremists when it comes to quantifiable public opinion, and again, the righteousness or wrongness here of positions is not dictated by public opinion, but gauging what counts as extreme is, right? You can't call something extreme if 63% of the public agrees with it. So the rhetoric that's just very prevalent out there, ubiquitous in the media, and a lot of these panel discussions and very alarmist chirons at the bottom of screens and headlines and op-eds and all of it, Instagram stories, angry Twitter threads, all this stuff, memes. They want to sort of reinforce this belief, this perception that if you feel like, you know, maybe there should be a line somewhere, maybe in the second trimester or earlier where abortion becomes wrong and shouldn't be legally permissible anymore because there's a human life worthy of protection, that that's some sort of crazy, radical, extremist, anti-woman belief. And yet that is what most Americans believe, including most American women. They fall within that spectrum. So the point that we've made a few different times this week, and and the reason I'm repeating myself on some of this stuff, I'm trying to give different data and come at it from different angles. So I'm not just completely beating the drum with the exact same talking points every day. But there's been so much falsehood out there. There's been so much misperception, I think, deliberately fueled for years that it has to be like fairly aggressively refuted. I'm not going to sit here and pound the table and say, if you disagree with me on anything, then you're just a baby killer and you should, you know, turn off your radio and go somewhere else. That's not my style. But I am going to make my case I'm going to do it without apology, and I'm going to try to do it with some nuance because guess what? Americans' views on this issue are nuanced. All of the data shows that. The Democrats' response to this on Capitol Hill is, we must codify Roe. We're going to pass a law. We're going to try to. They're going to try to pass a bill in Congress to, quote, unquote, codify Roe versus Wade with a federal law. But the problem is... What they've introduced does not do that. If they actually wanted to codify the existing legal precedent, which they say is so important and so fundamental, what they would do is basically allow a bill like the Mississippi law to come up in Congress, where you say it's legal before 15 or 20 weeks, and then it can be heavily restricted or is heavily restricted after that. That would come close to codifying the current status quo, but that is very much not what the Democratic leadership in Congress has decided to go with. They have a bill called the Women's Health Protection Act that they're going to push next week. They're introducing it next week in the Senate. It's already passed the House, by the way. The bill that I'm about to describe has already passed the Pelosi House. Every single House Democrat, except for one guy in Texas, voted for this bill, which does not even come close to codifying Roe. It goes much, much, much further to the point that if you actually look at its components, it would be supported based in the polling by about 15 percent of the public, all of whom it would seem are either members of Congress with a D next to their name or a journalist working in a mainstream newsroom. That's basically and like abortion activists, although there's a lot of crossover in those groups. 
That's it. It is wildly, grotesquely, I would say gruesomely extreme what they're introducing next week in the Senate. That's already passed out of the House. John McCormick at National Review has reported extensively on it. And I'll just read you the points, and John has written about it at NR. You can go to his piece. You can read the bill for itself. He's not making this stuff up. Number one, the Democratic legislation creates a right to abortion through all nine months of pregnancy. That is far beyond even Roe versus Wade and Casey versus Planned Parenthood. Number two, it would strike down nearly every state-level regulation on abortion, including, for example, parental consent laws. Where if, like, you know, your 15-year-old daughter is pregnant, she's going to go get an abortion, you need to be at least aware of it, notification, or at least, you know, give your consent because you're the parent. That has 70% support in public opinion. That is the law in a bunch of states. That would go away. Abortion regulations, almost all of them get wiped off the mat totally wiped off the map by this bill that the Democrats have introduced. Number three, it would gut conscience and religious liberty protections. Like healthcare professionals who don't want to actively participate in abortions, too bad under this bill. Your conscience is not protected. You are coerced and mandated to participate in the business of abortion, even if it is fundamentally and deeply against your own beliefs, religious or otherwise. Those protections, which is central to who we are as Americans, this type of First Amendment, freedom of expression, freedom from government coercion on this type of thing, that gets gutted in the Democratic bill, which also, number four, creates a right for non-doctors to perform abortions. Remember, it used to be safe, legal, and rare. Now it's just legal. They don't care about rare. They don't even particularly care about safe. Yeah, bring in some non-doctors to do it. This is fanatical. I understand that many of you listening are probably pro-choice. I have many pro-choice friends. We can agree on some things on this issue, disagree on others. There is a separate category in my mind, which is pro-abortion. It is very extreme. It does not apply to most pro-choice people. This bill is pro-abortion. There's no getting around it. Number five in this bill, it would eliminate state-level laws that prohibit sex-selective abortions. So someone just decides, oh, the ultrasound shows that this is a boy. I want a girl. Let's kill the boy to have a girl. Or in some cases, more likely the other way around, I want a boy. Let's kill the girl, which is very prominent, by the way, in China. For one example, U.S. states, some of them have said you can't just kill an unborn baby because it's not the gender that you prefer. The Democrats bill would eliminate those laws. If you want to kill a baby girl because she's a girl, that is your quote unquote right under what the Democrats are proposing. The 24 hour waiting period, which is supported by a 41 point margin among Americans, according to Gallup. Those laws in states go away under the Democratic bill. Some states say that there have to be pieces of information given to women on alternatives to abortion, such as adoption. That is massively supported by the American people. Gallup shows a 77-point margin in favor of that type of provision, which is the law in a lot of states. That goes away 
under the Democratic bill. As I say, pro-abortion. You can't even have women offered alternatives and information about alternatives or adoption. No. It's abortion or nothing in this bill. And this bill throws open the floodgates to taxpayer funding of abortion. So in summary, the Democratic bill that they're saying codifies Roe, which is a total lie that they're going to bring up in the Senate next week, would make elective abortions legal across the whole country for all nine months up until the moment of birth for any reason, virtually eliminating all state-level restrictions, including very popular ones, gutting conscience protections for health care workers who don't want to participate in abortions, sorry, allowing non-doctors to facilitate the abortions, and likely, in many cases, forcing taxpayers to finance all of it. Short of mandatory compulsory abortion, I cannot imagine a more extreme bill than this one. And that's what the Democrats are proposing and are going to put up for the Senate vote next week. It's going to fail, although it passed the House. Everything I just described to you passed the House. Every House Democrat voted yes, except for one, Henry Cuellar. It goes to the Senate next week. Susan Collins, Lisa Murkowski, these are pro-choice Republicans. They said, whoa, this goes way too far. How about our alternative bill that actually codifies Roe? Schumer said, nope. It's too vital to compromise. We're going all the way in on pro-abortion. So they don't have the votes in the Senate, but they're going to do a big show vote because they think it might benefit them. Is this what you want to vote for? People who believe this. 48 Senate Democrats out of 50 support it. It turns my stomach. And I hope you might agree with me whether you're pro-life or pro-choice, given the details that I just relayed. We got to go. Quick break right back on The Guy Benson Show on this Friday. The Guy Benson Show. More next. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. I'm Guy Benson. We're back. I see that they put up fencing around the Supreme Court because of the protests and the potential for violence. And I see CNN today reporting that their sources say they're worried about right wing Violence, Of course. Oh, yes, that makes perfect sense. These right-wing extremist justices, they say, are being targeted by right-wing extremists, their fellow right-wing extremists who appear to have won the case. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, just like the logic there is obviously preposterous, but they say it with a straight face on CNN. That's just amazing. I'm also hearing that some of these left-wing groups might actually protest at churches on Sunday for Mother's Day. Yeah, that'll win some hearts and minds, won't it? Peter Ducey up next. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. 
They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. Thank you, Jen. Sorry to see you go. Are you? (laughs) Back on the Guy Benson show, a little exchange there in the White House briefing room between our next guest and the outgoing Press secretary at the White House. Sorry to see you go, said Peter Ducey. Are you? Asked Jen Psaki. And with us now is Peter Ducey, White House correspondent here at Fox News. Peter, welcome back. And are you sorry to see her go? Yes, of course. She, uh, you know, we had our uh, share, fair share of exchanges that were shared widely on social media and beyond. But, uh, you know, she always she was always up for a hard question. And I have a lot of respect for that. What are your thoughts on her tenure as press secretary? And what are maybe like some insight into your relationship with her behind the scenes to the extent that you're comfortable sharing? Uh, We have a, a professional relationship. And I think that, you know, I've always been really interested in this job that I have and this like beat of trying to cover topics that some of the others in the briefing room are not covering are not asking about and jen has been uh, you know i'll talk to her offline uh, about some of those topics and you know they never tell me oh that's too wacky don't go there we don't want to talk about that it, it that's never been the case they they will prepare something so that our audience can understand uh what the what the president's thinking is, and that that's been very helpful. There was a story that came out a number of days ago about how the White House press corps beat is not what it used to be, and it was sort of this you know sexy, vaunted position that everyone aspired toward in political journalism, and you know they were out there saving democracy from Donald Trump or whatever, and there were some very nasty quotes in there. And it's like, you know, it would catapult people to stardom and they'd get book deals and TV deals and all this stuff. But now under the Biden administration, it's just all so boring. I read some of the story on the air last week. It's just boring and dull and Saki's just so great at what she does. And it just kind of feels like a snooze fest. Uh, I wonder what you thought of that piece, because uh, it feels kind of more revealing about the people who wrote it or contributed quotes to it than really reflecting on how the actual job has changed. I'm curious what you think. You know, full disclosure, uh, I am quoted in that piece um, by name towards the end as basically saying, and I don't, I remember talking to the reporter. I don't know if he used this part, but I told him, you know, Joe Biden came into office at this time where even people who wouldn't normally pay attention to politics had to because he's talking about, like, can your business open? Can your kid go to school? Uh, Can you be in the delivery room when your baby is born? Stuff like that. And so um, I I told that reporter that my experience has been that it has not been boring. We have not had any boring days because – you know, his style, the president's style might be different than what people are used to, but 
the things that are happening that he has a hand in are as impactful as any in in the history of the White House beat uh, that anybody quoted complaining about it could have been covering. Yeah, they just seem kind of bummed that maybe things aren't going so well for the guy most of them all voted for, and they don't have the foil of people that they hate to go after and sort of have this adversarial relationship where it's mutually beneficial and it benefits their career and their profile and they get to sort of lead the resistance from within or whatever. It just seems like uh, their view of what journalism is and what interesting stories are is colored by something other than actual journalistic instincts and newsworthiness, which, again, I think reflects on them. Uh, And there was one news executive saying there aren't really any stars in that briefing room these days. And I was offended on your behalf and Jackie's behalf. For the record, Peter, I see some stars. (laughs) You know, uh, something with a story like that, um, I I would be curious to see uh, who it is that is given the quote. Uh, a lot yep. of the people were there were granted anonymity. So, I, you know, just to better understand, I, I would be curious who said some of these things. Yeah, so would I. Meanwhile, there's going to be, of course, a successor to Jen Psaki at that podium. It's one of her deputies. What can you tell us about the next White House press secretary? Karine Jean-Pierre, she, uh, as Jen Psaki's uh, top lieutenant, has always been very proactive in my experience. You know, she'll reach out um, kind of just to see what we're interested in covering, uh, if we need any help, like getting to somebody at an agency or to understand something that's going on. And so I, my my personal experience with her has been very positive, and hopefully that continues. Peter, there was this exchange yesterday And I know that, again, there were more questions for the White House today about this, but you were pressing Saki because she's still there. I know she's off to become a competitor of ours at another network soon, but she's still, I guess, you know, there officially speaking for the president uh, until I believe it's the 13th, so about a, a week left to go in her tenure. And it deals with the Supreme Court and some of these acts of intimidation against Supreme Court justices over the abortion decision that appears to be forthcoming because of the leak that we all saw. The White House would not condemn the leak. I know that question was asked and they kind of sidestepped it, said they didn't have much of a view on that. They viewed that question as a distraction. But what about these left-wing groups who are publishing the home addresses of Supreme Court justices with whom they disagree for, in my view, unquestionably the explicit purpose of intimidation and bullying and you were trying to get Saki to condemn it. I don't really hear a condemnation here in cut one. Listen. Do you think the progressive activists that are now planning protests outside some of the justices' houses are extreme? Peaceful protest? No. Peaceful protest is but not extreme. These activists posted a map with the home addresses of the Supreme Court justices. Is that the kind of thing this president wants? The president's view is that there's a lot of passion, a lot of fear, uh, a lot of uh, sadness from many, many people across this country about what they saw in that leaked document. Uh, We obviously want people's privacy to be respected. We want people to protest peacefully if they want to, to protest. You went on to push her a little further, saying some of these justices have young kids, They have neighbors. These are not public figures who are in the neighborhood. 
Uh, is this something that you guys are comfortable with at the White House, with protesters and agitators and activists showing up in neighborhoods at people's houses? And she said, basically, as long as they keep it peaceful and don't get violent, uh, that's basically the, the extent of what she was willing to say. Did I miss something where she finally got around to saying, no, we shouldn't be doxing public officials and going to their private homes? No, never happened. And, uh, you know, uh, we were looking and some of the um, scholars with big Twitter followings started posting about this last night. There is a, a law that prohibits protesters from going to a justice's house if their intention is to try to intimidate them or try to get them to uh, try to interfere with a court proceeding. Well, the White House says that they hope the final Roe v. Wade draft is different than the leaked one. So what would these protesters then be doing with the with the support of the White House? They'd be going trying to Correct. get the get a different result. And obviously you know, Yeah, and so it's almost like uh, it, it is not an explicit endorse I, I don't want to make it sound like I'm endorsing uh, I'm accusing them of endorsing a criminal act. But um, depending on how these things shake out, uh, it, you know, we've seen we've seen protests escalate. And it's just it seems it, it seems like a potentially very combustible game that the White House is yeah. playing with this. Well, it also seemed like it should be a pretty easy layup for Saki to at least say, while we, you know, with all the caveats, we disagree with this. We are hoping that we're going to continue to fight for X, Y, and Z. The president's view is A, B, and C. However, doxing Supreme Court justices and going to their homes to picket and agitate, that is a bridge too far. And we here at the White House uh, cannot condone that. We condemn it in the strongest terms. And we hope that our allies go and pick it peacefully at the Supreme Court, which is appropriate, and vote in November, which, of course, is vital uh, and appropriate. Those are the things that seem like a pretty easy low bar for them to say. And yet we got the answer and the non-answer that we got. I mean, it was, it was I think, pretty revealing that they are kind of winking at these people saying, well, if you're going to go to the justices' houses, you know, go for it. Just don't hurt someone. I guess is, I mean, that that's the brave line in the sand that the White House is drawing here. Unless, again, unless I'm misinterpreting this. No, it, it seems like it was pretty straightforward. I asked a couple different ways and got the same answer, which is it's okay to go to one of the conservative justices' houses uh, right. because we we know you're upset. So so here's here's a question for Jen Psaki. I know she's got a few more days left, and I'm not telling you how to do your job. There's something that Guy Benson is curious about in my own personal capacity. There are a lot of people to quote the White House, to quote Jen Psaki. There's a lot of passion, a lot of fear, a lot of sadness about a lot of things happening in this country right now. And a lot of Americans hold the White House and this president responsible for those things. She is the spokesperson for the president who delivers his message every single day. And that message is often stirring passions and fears and sadness among many people, would she have any objection to conservative organizations, some conservative group, publishing her street address where she and her children live 
or I don't know if she has multiple kids. I know she has at least one where she and her family live. Would Jen Psaki have an issue if a right wing group published online her address, encouraging people to show up at her doorstep on her lawn to make their passion, fear and sadness known? I wonder how she would react. Would she just sort of say, oh, well, you know, this is kind of part of the process. And uh, as long as they keep it peaceful, I'll, you know, bring them some lemonade. I I wonder what her thoughts might be there. Well, if uh, if those protesters thought that their rights were being infringed upon and they were upset about it, uh, as long as they kept it peaceful, it sounds like it would be okay. Yeah, well, I mean, I'd, I'd love to hear that from her. And I kind of suspect that maybe that would not be the reaction viscerally that she would have, and it would not be the reaction of the body politic and the chattering class, and I think people would be denouncing it widely if some right-wing group was publishing her address or Justice Sotomayor, Justice Kagan, whatever, publishing their addresses, the, you know, the incoming justice, Justice Jackson, what, where does she live? You know, you put that out there and people go to their houses. I think everyone, myself included, at the front of the line would say, this is way too far. This is way beyond the pale. This is way over the line. Don't do this. And yet that is not what we're hearing from even the White House itself on this. And I just find that curious, Peter. And pretty disturbing, actually. Well, and again, uh, there are widespread protests in big cities across the country that are planned for coming days. Big cities know how to handle protests. It's when these things do spill out into the suburbs that uh, just every single bit of it becomes a wild card. And so Mm -hmm. that's something that we know that federal law enforcement is paying very close attention to the the possibilities of that happening um we just don't know about federally elected officials yet and um but but we will before too long yeah i mean because we got it in the trump administration i remember they went to the uh dhs secretary's house i believe they might have gone to one of the press secretary's houses actually come to think of it it happened a couple different times you had members of congress maxine waters saying if you see people in public get in their faces hound them that kind of thing Uh, i wonder if that's now kind of mainstream and almost tacitly, if not explicitly, endorsed by the president of the United States. They're really not doing uh, much work to disabuse us of that belief based on the answers that you got and didn't get, frankly, yesterday. Peter, you also tried to get out of Saki the president's position on abortion. Is there a single restriction or limitation at all that he would support? This is someone who voted to overturn Roe versus Wade back when he was a senator years ago, who is called himself a pro-life Democrat or a moderately pro-choice Democrat uh, who was against taxpayer funding of abortion his entire career until very recently. He's become nine months on demand, paid for by taxpayers, basically as extreme as you can get. You were trying to get her to sort of say that out loud. She seemed like she didn't want to give you that soundbite while also delivering that answer that basically is, yes, the president believes that there should not be any limitation whatsoever on abortion. What did you make of her answer there? Am I interpreting what she said more or less correctly? Uh, Yeah. I mean, she kept telling me to refer back to the president's longstanding position. But the issue is his position has evolved from being pretty basically pro-life back in the 70s. And then, you know, somebody who's saying for religious reasons that he thinks abortion should be rare uh, and that it's a tragedy in 2006. 
and talking about how he's the odd man out in the Democratic Party because he thinks that, uh, to now. And, you know, like two years ago, he didn't get a lot of questions about his position on abortion because everything was just COVID and Trump, COVID and Trump, rinse and repeat. So, you know, things like foreign policy, abortion policy, it, it didn't come up. And so I, I, we'll, we'll get to the bottom of He's going to have to he's going to have to explain in greater detail sometime soon. Yeah, um, I'd like to hear him actually talk about it you know, himself, because you're exactly right. Saki kept saying, I refer you back to the president's own words. He's talked about this issue many times. And then obviously the response is, well, which Joe Biden quotes you're talking about? Because there's a whole lot of them out there and they are vastly disparate in terms of his position, which has changed repeatedly based basically in alignment with what uh, the the base of Democratic politics require at any given moment. And I guess that's where we are right now. More questions on all of this, of course, forthcoming for this press secretary and the next one. And a lot of them will be posed by our colleague here at Fox News, Peter Ducey over at the White House. Peter, always appreciate your time. Have a great weekend. Thanks, guys. See you soon. No problem. You have my home address. Just please don't publish it. (laughs) Okay. Okay, it's a deal. All right, we'll take a break. We'll come right back. It's the Guy Benson Show. Guy Benson will be right back. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton Withrow. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. Back here on the Guy Benson Show, the April jobs report came in today. It was pretty good, beating expectations, 428,000 jobs. We still haven't caught up to where we were before the pandemic. Wages are up, but really not by enough to come close to catching up to inflation, which is ultimately the really bad news in all of this. So a couple bright spots, a couple dark spots in the jobs report. Overall, here's Austin Goolsby an Obama Democratic economist, giving his thoughts on the jobs report earlier, cut 25. Nothing happened in this report, I don't think, that is going to change the underlying fact. So in a way, it's the Goldilocks report, but it's Goldilocks in, a, in an awful situation. It's, it's not going to change. The Fed is still going to tighten. We're still up against this. Can we manage a soft landing? An awful situation, and that's all back to inflation, which continues. Another hour of The Guy Benson Show coming up. Live from the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. It's a brand new hour here on the Guy Benson Show. Happy Friday, one and all. I'm Guy Benson here at the Tony Snow Radio Studio, our home base in Washington, D.C. Just steps from the Capitol building here. Glad to have you all along. 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time. That's when we air. We encourage you to listen live. If you can't, we have a podcast that is growing in popularity. 
think we smashed another record last month. We're waiting for those final numbers to come in, but we are just very grateful to all of you. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. GuyBensonShow.com. Again, that podcast free of charge on demand every day. I'll be on the big show this weekend co-hosting that program along with three other co-hosts. I think Charlie Hurt is on the panel. I think Tammy Bruce is on the panel as well. I'll have to double-check my email. But it's Saturday and Sunday, 5 p.m. Eastern. That's this weekend, so hope to see you on FNC on the TV side as we work through the weekend. Fox News alert as we begin this hour. The Dow closes down today, 96 points. Closing at 32,901. So just a roller coaster. Big spike in the markets on Wednesday. Massive crash yesterday. Then the jobs report this morning that we talked about last hour. And relatively stable flat today, although down a little bit at the close. Still shy of 33,000. Joining me now is Fox News medical correspondent Dr. Mark Siegel, author of the book COVID. The Politics of Fear and the Power of Science. He's on Twitter at D-R-M-A-R-C-S-I-E-G-E-L, at Dr. Mark Siegel on Twitter. And, Doctor, good to have you back here. Thanks for joining us. Always great to be on with you, Guy. And I was thinking as you were introducing the secret of your success, there are many. And it's that, it's that you're charming, erudite, warm intelligent, and you have a very decisive voice, by the way, which helps on the radio. So now I'm your biggest uh, uh, supporter now. I'm going to be a PR for you. Well, I, I appreciate that you read that script that I sent you perfectly, <laughs> and we will send you that gift card as promised. Thank you, Doctor. I, and we do appreciate the kind words in all seriousness. I want to ask you first about this development involving the J&J, Johnson & Johnson vaccine, where it looks like they haven't recalled it, but they're going to really be limiting its use because of what they still say is a very rare condition. What has happened? What is the condition? What can you tell us here? Well, the, the condition with the J&J we've known about from the beginning, which is not from the beginning. We knew, we knew about it a year ago, which is that basically it can cause a blood clot or it can increase, increase your risk of getting a blood clot. But we're talking about out of 16 million people that have gotten the vaccine, the J&J in the United States, only between 60 and 70 have had this problem. And what happens is it's more than just a blood clot. You also get a lowering of your platelet count, which is basically the part of your blood that you use to stop bleeding. So it's a bad combination to have that going on, clotting and that, and it's definitely life-threatening, and it's a bad complication. But it's very, very rare. Or you I said, hang on, 60, 60 to 70 people, like we're in the dozens right. here out of 16 million. Right. So it's okay. very, very rare. I think, I think this is more about the idea that they made a decision that, it is, that it's got more of a risk than the other vaccines do it, across the board. Now, that doesn't mean the other vaccines don't have side effects too, right? The mRNA vaccines, as you know, have about 10, in a, 10 to 20 in a million risk of myocarditis in teens. So that's something that, that they have to weigh what tools they have and what tools need to be used. And I think the J&J &J really got sidelined more because it does, it's outlived its usefulness. It's not that it's dangerous. That's not what it is. It's, it's got a rare risk associated with it that you don't ever want to see. 
So the so you know even the myocarditis risk that goes away, guy. Most almost everybody recovers from that. But this blood clot, you may not recover from that. So they 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 want to stay away from serious life-threatening risks, and they're they're comf- they're believing that it actually is real, as am I. And they have alternatives. They have a better a better way to approach this. The J and J, if you recall, was initially sold as one and done. Now I right. kept thinking I kept thinking at the time that that was a deliberate misinformation to get people who were hesitant to take a vaccine to take it. I never believed that shot was going to be enough. I thought that one and done was for people that just loathe vaccines, but they wanted to get them to take something. And now we're going to get to a bigger issue is that way of informing people is not the way to go about it, is it? Now, what happens if you are someone, uh, you're among the 16 million people who did get Johnson & Johnson? I have a few friends who got it. I actually was hoping for it at first because it did seem less intrusive than having to go twice. I ended up getting Moderna, and I was very happy to get it, and I've been very pro-vaccine. Of those 16 million people, some of them look at this. They see a headline that the FDA has now limited the use of it because of these rare side effects. And I just think, you know, human nature, the way that your brain works, you start to catastrophize. You start to worry about yourself. What if this very rare thing applies to me? What's your message to those folks? You know, how nervous should they be? I know, you know, the the stats say they shouldn't be nervous almost at all. It's vanishingly rare, but still, that's not the way our our brains work and process information. You know, as a doctor, what would you tell them? And is there anything that they could maybe just be on the lookout for symptoms in themselves just to feel, you know, extra okay and confident that they're going to be all right? Well, first of all, I'd say they have zero risk. But but if they want to feel reassured, go see your doctor, and he's going to do a simple blood test to make sure your platelet count's okay, and that you're not having a you know you're not prone to clotting. But the, but the chances of it surfacing this many months later after the vaccine, I'd say, are really close to zero. But again, you know, I, I think you're right that the worry is real. So in other words, if something was going to happen, you'd know it right away after getting the shot. You'd know it within a week or two after getting the shot. That's when those side effects are occurring, right at the time. Not many months later, but you know, you're going to say, I can see the listeners saying, well, how do I know I didn't have a mild version of that that, that, that went under the radar? Well, it's really unlikely, but, but I can do that with a blood test. I can, tell, I can absolutely rule it out. All right, so peace of mind. If that's what you want, that's what you can go do with your doctor, but overall, you're fine. This is, again, so, so rare. Dr. Siegel, I also want to talk about this. We had Dr. Deborah Burks on the show this week. She's got a new book out. We talked for the better part of an hour here on the program. And one thing that she told our audience that I thought was newsworthy and very interesting was that there was a pretty strong, good, solid study that came out in the summer of 2020 about the impact on children of being isolated, being in lockdowns, being out of school when it came to their development and their mental health. And she and a few other people brought it to the CDC and said, you really need to read this. You really need to, I think, consider this information and include it in your school opening guidance for the subsequent fall a few months later. And she said the CDC just wasn't really interested in that. Uh, the CDC went a different direction. Of course, we knew that they were being pressured by teachers unions and they continued this guidance that allowed a lot of schools catastrophically, very harmfully to remain closed for an entire additional school year in a lot of places around the country. 
Now there's a story, you know, this week in the New York Times, and we've seen a spate of these stories in recent months in the Atlantic and elsewhere, where it's like finally they're telling us, oh, gosh, it looks like this was really, really bad for kids, and it didn't have to be this way, and the science didn't really support keeping those schools closed the way that they were. I mean, we knew this according to Burks. We had good data on this all the way back in July of 2020, and it just seems extremely frustrating to me that here we are in May of 2022, and some people are writing this up like it's some sort of revelation like we had no way of knowing how bad this would have been for kids we did we knew it all the way back then i i want to give you let's see how much news i can break in two minutes first of all i agree with you totally and i was i personally was talking about this in the spring of 2020 and citing studies from australia studies from europe and and even studies from the united states that were beginning to emerge urging at the top of my voice on TV that, this, that these schools should be open in print. And I, I, also, uh, I also was aware and interviewed the person that was doing these studies down at, at Duke in early 2021, uh, Dr. Benjamin. He did studies in North Carolina on this. We have studies in Wisconsin on this. But we, we don't want to believe anything coming out of Europe, right? Well, we should have. We should never have closed the schools. That's number one. Number two, Robert Redfield told me that he wasn't the voice that they should be closed. So I just want to get that on the record. He's told me that. Okay. Number three, Deborah Burks, I think, is a really great infectious disease specialist. But the one thing that I have a problem with, and I want to get this out, is that when I interviewed Donald Trump in July of 2020, he point blank told me that she comes every day with a big loose leaf folder of information and updates and that they met and she, he listened to it. So that was back then he told me that. So I have no doubt that she was extremely capable. I think she's very balanced and I think she definitely wanted the schools open, but she wasn't the only one. You and I wanted them open and there was no evidence to close them. And we were screaming it at the top of our lungs because the studies showed it then. So why didn't it happen? I mean, we know that some of the politics were at play, but why didn't it happen? I mean, at that point, it was still the Trump administration. I think the fact that Trump came out for schools being open made a lot of people say, well, now we have to close the schools because Trump said it. So we have to do the opposite. Yeah, that's for sure. And, and there's, there's also the teachers union. And there was this deliberately stoked fear that teachers would be at risk. And here's the biggest mistake. And this is why the idea of misinformation has to do not with politics, but just not following sci that famous word, follow the science, and nobody does. Mm -hmm. Hey, Guy, if you had me on, and I'm sure you did have me on, but if we were talking about this in 2020, you know what I would have told you? If you take a bunch of unruly kids and you put them out in the community, they're going to spread virus. But if you put yep. them in a school and you control it a little bit, they're going to spread less virus. That's and it was, and we knew that. The, the data showed us that kids and adults were safer in schools than basically anywhere else indoors in any community and that science was all ignored and it was a disaster for our children dr siegel always good to talk to you have a great weekend great to be on with you guy and remember that voice and the and the, and the wisdom makes everybody <laughs> i appreciate it we'll be right back i'm guy benson we're back on the guy benson show a story that is getting, once again, fairly scant attention in the U.S. media is yet another spasm of violence by terrorists against Israelis. 
Here's a headline. New York Times did cover it on one of their blogs. Three people killed in an axe attack in Israel, extending wave of violence. This was in Jerusalem. Two assailants, at least one of them armed with an axe, attacked passersby in an Israeli town Thursday night, killing at least three, according to initial reports from eyewitnesses. Israeli authorities described the assault, in which several other people were wounded, as a terrorist attack. The attack followed a wave of violence by Arab assailants that had already killed 14 people in cities across Israel since late March and came days after a Palestinian militant leader urged Arabs to, quote, get your cleavers, axes or knives ready, end quote. Thursday's attack also came after clashes between Palestinian stone throwers and Israeli police at the Al-Aqsa Mosque compound in Jerusalem over the last few weeks. And it raised the specter that Israel had entered a new period of prolonged violence. The assailants in this case appear to have escaped. Police said they had set up checkpoints along several roads, and officers in a police helicopter were searching for a vehicle seen fleeing the scene. No one claimed responsibility for the attack on Thursday, but it was praised by a Hamas spokesman as, quote, a brave and heroic act and, quote, a natural response to the violations of the occupation. So, once again, there have been multiple examples of this in recent weeks. Arab Israelis and or Palestinian terrorists have used guns, vehicles, I believe, at least in one case, and now an axe, to kill innocent Israelis indiscriminately. And while Israel is mourning its dead, you have the terrorist organizations and their followers celebrating. Because the Israelis, like most cultures, celebrate life, but the deeply backwards Hamas Islamist worldview celebrates death. And it's sick. And I read in another report that the three people who were killed by this axe-wielding Arab terrorist in Israel yesterday, among the three of them, they had 16 children. So there are 16 kids in Israel today now mourning the loss and grappling with the loss of a parent, which is just disgusting. And yet it touches off celebrations, people dancing in the streets, passing out candy, These are the values that are taught to Palestinian children to celebrate when Jews are killed. And I know that there are a lot of people that say, oh, there's a big difference between opposing Israeli policies and being an anti-Semite. And that's true. You can be a critic of Israeli policy and not be anti-Semitic. But the people who are obsessed with Israel, the people who chant from the river to the sea – which is eliminationist, talking about basically genocide against Israel, the people who want to boycott, the only tiny, teeny Jewish state in the world and who are disproportionately obsessed with Israel. Right? You've got members of Congress who are against sanctions in many cases, including against brutal authoritarian communist regimes 
against Iran, against Venezuela. Oh, no, we don't want to boycott. We don't want to sanction those countries. But Israel signed them up for that sanction regime, that boycott. There's more than just a good faith disagreement with the government. It's more deep seated than that. And the anti-Semitism that undergirds the terrorism absolutely seeps out into the types of groups that make common cause with or make excuses for and apologies for these terrorists. When they'll sort of half-heartedly say, well, of course, we condemn the violence, but – and then it's right back to a criticism of Israel with a bunch of blood libel and a bunch of slanders and historically illiterate calumnies. It's really not very subtle. And in certain elements of the progressive left, it's almost like a bigotry that is allowed. It's one of the few open bigotries still permitted in certain elements of polite society so long as it is manifested on the political left. And I didn't want to get too much into our politics here. That misses the point. Three more Israelis are dead now and 16 kids have lost a parent after this terrorist attack in the state of Israel. And for the most part, the world is averting its eyes and has no idea that this spate of violence is even happening. But our eyes are open, and we are using our platform to let you know what's going on here on The Guy Benson Show. Which returns after this break, former Attorney General Bill Barr joins me next talking about the Supreme Court the leaks, the threats against justices, plus some of the other issues of the day. That's straight ahead. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. Halfway through the show on this Friday, thank you for tuning in. GuyBensonShow.com. Hope to see you this weekend on The Big Show. I'll be co-hosting that program on Fox News Channel over on the TV side, 5 p.m. Saturday and Sunday. So please tune in or set your DVRs. GuyBensonShow.com is our website here at the radio show where the podcast is free on demand every day, including bonus Benson on the weekends. Joining me now is Bill Barr, former U.S. Attorney General, author of One Damn Thing After Another, his memoirs, which... Is just a fantastic book. We had him here in studio a number of weeks ago for the full hour. And, Mr. Attorney General, it's great to have you back on The Guy Benson Show. Welcome. Thanks, Guy. It's great to be back. I want to start with the story of the week, which is the Supreme Court abortion from a jurisprudence perspective, then also this leak at the Supreme Court. Let's start with the leak. Just from a procedural standpoint, you're a guy who really believes in institutions. You've been around the levers of power of government for your really your whole career, for a lot of it at least. How shocking was this to you that this was leaked out, an entire draft opinion that the chief justice has confirmed to be authentic? I, I was very shocked. It was almost unbelievable uh, that this happened. There's no, it's never happened before. And, but it shows you uh, that we live in a period of time where the left uh, – feels that the uh, ends justify the means, that because they know what's right for everybody and they're leading us to some earthly paradise, that anything they do uh, is justified and anyone in their way uh, has to be rolled over. 
How do you think the leak should be investigated? What should that look like? And if and when the parties responsible are identified, are there legal consequences potentially here? Or would it just be the legal community blackballing this person? What are your thoughts on the ramifications when the culprit is found? Well, confidentiality is critical to the functioning of of the judiciary. Uh, They need to be able to have, uh, you know, discourse within the court in deciding a case and make sure that it's kept confidential until the opinion comes out. And uh, so this was an obstruction uh, uh, of the judicial process. It was an interference in the due administration of justice. So I think that it's a crime. It was done. It appears to have been done. And I think eventually it'll be shown to have been done in order to derail the opinion and uh, upset the the deliberations of the court. And so I think ultimately it, it belongs in the criminal justice side of things. And the person who did this should go to jail. Uh, now, uh, there could be some preliminary review of this thing to see Uh, if they can figure out quickly who it is and then turn it over to the Department of Justice for prosecution. Um, It shouldn't, you know, the the number of people who both had access and a motive is relatively small. uh, Dozens, right? Yes. And so uh, unlike other leaks where you have hundreds of people who could have leaked it, this is a relatively small group, and they should be able to narrow it down fairly quickly. You think it should be a crime. Sometimes people go on TV or radio and spout off about this person ought to go to jail or whatever. You were attorney general of the United States with a deep understanding of the law. So that has weight. It carries weight coming from you. What would the crime be? What would the charge be in your opinion here? Right. So generally, as I've spoken out a lot, I'm against the use of the criminal justice process for uh, as part of the political uh, process. And so I, I generally object to people just, you know, saying about their political enemies, you know, they should be put in jail. But well, and you uh, mentioned that a lot in the book, by the way, like that's you're not yeah, just yeah. saying that but, for the moment to make your point stronger. You write about it extensively in one damn thing right. after another. But please go on. Right. But this is you know, but that doesn't mean that where there is a case where there is a cold blooded uh, inter- effort to derail the judicial process. Uh, that that shouldn't be punished as a crime. It seems to me, you know, there are a number of criminal laws that are potentially applicable here. There's fraud against the United States, which includes situations where people engage in misconduct here, the breach of confidentiality, for the purpose of interfering in the uh, normal process uh, of of a government body. And, you know, that would be applicable here. There is also criminal laws against using uh, government documents uh, to uh, advance one's own interests and essentially uh, to convert government property uh, and to conspire to do that. Uh, And there are classical obstruction of justice statutes which involve uh, efforts to interfere or uh, influence with with a corrupt uh, engage in some corrupt act here again the breach of confidentiality uh, to uh, obstruct the due administration of justice so I think there are a number of criminal laws that would be applicable Bill Barr is our guest former US Attorney General and there was an exchange yesterday at the White House between our colleague here at Fox News Peter Ducey and Jen Psaki who's the outgoing White House press secretary about this development recently in the last few days that hardcore leftist 
you know, pro-abortion groups are going so far in expressing their anger at this apparent decision that they have been publishing online the home addresses of the Supreme Court justices who appear to be in the majority in this case. All six Republican-appointed justices' home addresses have been doxed online by these left-wing groups. And the question was for the White House, because the White House did not condemn the leak. They basically said that was a distraction from the bigger issue. Ducey asked Saki, will the White House, will the president condemn the publishing of the addresses, which is, you know, intimidation here? Will he do that? Here's the exchange in the back and forth. Cut one. Do you think the progressive activists that are now planning protests outside some of the justices' houses are extreme? Peaceful protest? No, peaceful protest is not extreme. These activists posted a map with the home addresses of the Supreme Court justices. Is that the kind of thing this president wants? The president's view is that there's a lot of passion, a lot of fear, uh, a lot of uh, sadness from many, many people across this country about what they saw in that leaked document. Uh, We obviously want people's privacy to be respected. We want people to protest peacefully if they want to, to protest. All right. So I did not hear a condemnation there. They said or Saki said that this would be peaceful, that there's a lot of passion and fear out there and people want to protest. If they want to do that peacefully, that's fine. She briefly mentioned something about the privacy of people being respected. But I did not hear an overt denunciation of publishing the home addresses publicly of Supreme Court justices for the only purpose, obviously, of intimidation with no regard, I guess, for families, children, neighbors, any of that. Number one, were you ever targeted at your house? Because I know this was something that happened to Trump officials in the previous administration. And number two, what's your reaction to what we just heard? Why shouldn't the White House be very quick to easily say, we disagree with this apparent opinion, uh, we're going to be fighting for you know, women's choice or whatever you want to say, but this goes too far. Uh, they didn't even really come close to saying that, at least to my ear. Right. Uh, well, I was appalled that they didn't just come out and, and condemn this. It, it really, to me, to, to you know, to to allow the doxing of uh, Supreme Court justices, and as she says, there's a lot of passion. As you say, it was obviously done precisely to intimidate them, and and it does expose them to additional threats. Uh, you know, I, I was mildly uh, harassed, but but. Uh, it wasn't it wasn't too bad and i had a lot of protection um but you know the left has been tolerant of violence for some time now uh, when when trump first ran uh during the election there were numerous instances of groups uh, attacking uh, trump supporters uh they were never condemned by the democrats uh, they didn't condemn the violence over the summer of 2020 uh, and uh, so, you know, this is sort of part and parcel of the Democratic Party now. Uh, one of the distinctions is on January 6th, the Republican leaders came out and condemned it right away, the attacks on the police and the violence that uh, was used to enter the Capitol. So, you know, there's a there's a clear distinction there. I haven't heard. Maybe maybe it happened today. I haven't been monitoring the news that closely, but they're also threatening to disrupt uh, church services uh, yep. on on Mother's Day, and I haven't heard yep. the administration come down hard on that. And I think they would be targeting, among other churches, Catholic churches. We hear so much about 
the devout Catholicism of this president, setting aside his increasingly extreme views on abortion, I wonder if he might draw the line on picketing outside churches on Mother's Day. We'll see. I mean, it seems like there's very little they're willing to condemn in this realm, so long as it is anger and passion on one side of this issue. And I can't help but wondering, uh, Mr. Attorney General, if, because look, I mean, there's a lot of anger and fear and passion out there about a bunch of different issues. And you could make an argument that Jen Psaki is the face of the White House, and a lot of people are very angry at the White House and fearful of some of their policies and and the things that are being done under the auspices of the president, would it be a condemnable act if some right-wing group published the home address of the White House press secretary? I can't imagine that her view would be so cavalier if it were her, her family, her children, her neighbors being targeted. And I also can't imagine that there would not be a massive outcry in the media if the roles were reversed here. And I know it sometimes gets exhausting to talk about media bias and what if the shoe were on the other foot, but this one seems so glaring about what would be considered correctly totally beyond the pale if it were Justice Sotomayor or Jen Psaki or you name it, whereas if the person being targeted is on the right who has done something quote-unquote wrong in the eyes of official leftism, then the ends sort of justify the means or at least you can kind of avert your eyes and not say too much. That's the impression that I'm getting here, and it's hard to avoid it. That's right. But it's, it's becoming increasingly uh, shameless, you know, the double standard and the hypocrisy. But that's also one of the casualties of the corruption of the mainstream media, that they are part and parcel, uh, you know, of the progressive movement. Uh, they, they are not uh, objective. They're not calling balls and strikes. And so, uh, you know, you don't have uh, the mainstream media out there calling attention to the double standard. Uh, And so it just sort of it just sort of happens. And, you know, it seems people accept it. But it it creates a lot of uh, of of anger and frustration within our body politic. Yeah, it it deepens. The whole essence of democracy is, you know, the Democrats are always simpering about democracy. Democracy is great. It's part of our system. But uh, uh, it seems that they uh, will resort to mob violence whenever they don't get their way. Mm -hmm. And that double standard that you're talking about, I think, deepens the mistrust and just shreds the credibility of organizations that feel like they should have this credibility. They're entitled to it. But their own behavior and conduct is what has undermined it over and over again. Finally, Mr. Attorney General, did you read Justice Alito's apparent or purported opinion? Did you read the document? Yes, I did. What is your legal uh, analysis of it? Well, I personally think he's right. Uh, You know, there's a video of me back in 1992 being interviewed, and I said, I think eventually Roe v. Wade will be struck down because it's an untenable position. It doesn't fit in the law and that eventually it would fall of its own weight. And uh, so I think the arguments made by Justice Alito are correct. Last question briefly. You've written in your book, One Damn Thing After Another, about a bunch of topics that were not covered very heavily, at least in the questions that were asked of you during your book tour, which were heavily dealing with President Trump and sort of some of the drama at the end of the Trump administration. But you did talk about challenges like crime and immigration. We're obviously seeing this explosion at the southern border with the border crisis that's only getting worse. Do you have any thoughts on, from a a legal standpoint, a law and order standpoint, 
what could be done to maybe not perfectly cure a problem that has been intractable for decades, but vastly improve over the chaos that's playing out right now down there? Uh, on the border, I, I think we could solve it. I think the Trump administration had essentially solved the border. We had we had control over the border, and with the rest of the wall being built, I think we would have had uh, a very secure uh, border. And this is a self-inflicted wound. When they stopped uh, finishing the wall and then stopped the Remain in Mexico program, uh, once we installed the Remain in Mexico program, people no longer started coming up from Central America because they realized they weren't going to be able to – get into the United States and stay there. So uh, I think the, the border problem was dealt with, effectively dealt with for the first time under Trump, and uh, it was essentially dismantled in a self-destructive way by, the, by Biden. The crime mm-hmm. problem is also self-inflicted. We know how to reduce crime. We did it for 22 consecutive years, uh, up until Obama in 2014 and the war against police. Uh, and crime started going back up again. And under uh, Trump, it went back down for three years. And then in 2020, it started going back up again. But it's basically the revolving door justice. We're making the same mistake we did in the 60s and 70s when crime quintupled. Right now, murders are going back up to the level that they used to be at in, in the early 1990s. And uh, it's it's all a question of getting the repeat violent offenders off the streets and into prison where they belong. Yeah, it seems like the incentive structures at the border and on crime have been turned on their respective heads here, and the consequences are playing out before our eyes. Bill Barr, author of One Damn Thing After Another, my guest here on The Guy Benson Show. Mr. Attorney General, always good to talk to you. Looking forward to seeing you soon, and we'll have you back here at some point as well. Thanks so much for taking some time today. Thank you, Guy. See you soon. Bye. We'll take a break, and right after this, we will return on The Guy Benson Show. Stay with us. Guy Benson will be right back. Back here on The Guy Benson Show, we haven't talked in a few weeks about the Iran deal that the Biden team is trying to negotiate through the Russians with the mullahs who won't talk to the U.S. directly because they hate us. So we're using the Russians as an intermediary, even while Russia is being treated otherwise as a global pariah. And apparently the concessions being made by the U.S. are so egregious that multiple members of the Biden delegation have stepped away and resigned from the talks in protest. So that's good. But we were concerned about whether Congress would have any role in maybe stopping a terrible deal should it finally come together. And it's been sort of snarled in a diplomatic thicket here for a while. So it's unclear what the status quo is. But there was a vote in the Senate this week on the Iran deal, and it did not go well for the Biden administration. Politico says, quote, President Biden's bid to revive the Iran nuclear deal flunked its first test in the U.S. Senate. A bipartisan supermajority of senators voted late Wednesday to endorse a Republican-led measure stating that any nuclear agreement with Tehran should also address Iran's support for terrorism in the region and that the U.S. should not lift sanctions on an elite branch of the Iranian military, the IRGC. Sixteen Democrats, 16, joined almost all the Republicans. It was well past the 60-vote threshold. This was more symbolic than anything. It doesn't really have binding teeth so to speak. But it was a clear indication to the White House and Team Biden that yet again, as we saw in 20, 
2015, I believe it was, under Obama, there is significant bipartisan opposition to what is happening. And Congress at least is making that known on a low level for now. It's a warning sign for the Biden administration and a welcome one at that. The Guy Benson Show continues with our final hour, Fridays with Cat coming up. Stay here. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. Happy Hour on a Friday. It's the Guy Benson Show. Happy Friday to all of you. I'm Guy Benson here in D.C. Our website at the program, GuyBensonShow.com. Pretty easy. G-U-Y-B-E-N-S-O-N Show.com. The podcast is free every single day, including bonus Benson over the weekend, Saturday and Sunday. No charge to you on demand, GuyBensonShow.com. It's at Guy Benson Show, Twitter and Instagram if you want to follow us on social. And the happy hour is sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink, which is terrific, expanding rapidly. In fact, we got some swag in the mail from our friends at the Long Drink just yesterday, some T-shirts, some hats. So uh, got the apparel to go here with the sponsorship. And I will be wearing it. They've got a good logo. You can go to their website, GuyBensonShow.com. You can see where they're sold near you. And you can also order online if they haven't reached your state or area yet, but Likely, if they haven't, that will change in the coming weeks and months. More to come on all of that. TheLongDrink.com. Always drink responsibly. 21 plus only. Well, it is Friday, which means it's time for Fridays with Cat. Cat Tim, Fox News contributor, co-host of Gutfeld on Fox News Channel every weeknight at 11. Also co-host of the Tyrus and Tim podcast at FoxNewsPodcast.com. Cat joins us from our studios in New York. Hello. Hi. How are you? I'm really good. How are you? I'm quite well. You sound like you are in one of your better moods today. I'm in a great mood. It's wonderful to be alive. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, wait. Who are you? Where's Kat? Um, So I have to say the new studio looks phenomenal. And for Gutfeld is what I'm talking about here. And the audience sounds phenomenal. Like it's a real late night crowd in terms of the laughter and the applause and everything just talk about that experience rolling out the new set with a bigger audience this week yeah it's amazing I mean the first time I saw photos of it but the first time I actually saw it in person I actually got chills because you know we had the folding chairs always for years and years and then with COVID we had you know 10 people in the audience and we had no audience Mm -hmm. forever and this is all stadium seating and it's like it's 84 people and it's been sold out every night And it's just it's a completely different feeling having the actual stadium seating where you see people up there like it's, you know, a theater and not, you know, (laughs) a school play. You know what I mean? It's crazy. You know, it's like it's legit. And I haven't actually seen it in person. I've only seen some of the photographs. And then, of course, like, you know, the TV images. But I'm very excited. I think I'm up there next week for Gutfeld. And I will get the tour and. Wave to the crowd, which will actually be a crowd as opposed to like a random tiny gathering of people, right? It's an actual yes. audience for real. And you said it's sold out, but just to clarify, tickets are not 
they're, they're for free. sale, right? They're, they're free. free. Yeah. So people can go online, get their tickets, and I guess there's a big waiting list. It's a, a hot item, but it's worth it. It's a very fun experience in this brand new studio sort of across that breezeway. I guess that was the old Gutfeld studio, right, from the weekend show. It used to be outnumbered. It used to be a few different Kennedy. That was her studio yep. for a long time. And they've just completely gutted it. It's unrecognizable, and it's beautiful. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, the, again, like seeing the stadium seating is just wild. Yeah, <laughs> that's Can't wait to see it. Uh, let me ask Don't you. Don't get too before, nervous. <laughs> oh, th- thanks for that. Now I'm going to just like build my anxiety until next week. It'll be good. The thing is, it's weird, and maybe I'm sure you can relate to this. When I've done Gutfeld, I'm more nervous or like have like a nervous energy about the people physically in the room, which is at most in the past. It's been at most maybe 40 people total, including the crew, including the panel, as opposed to the you know 1.7 to 2.1 million people watching at home. Like, I- that doesn't phase me. Yeah, we've been averaging two million viewers, but you forget about you forget about those people because they're not right in front of you. <laughs> but especially with the bigger audience, it's like whoa, you know, whoa. But you know, and you do forget because I agree with that. Like every time you're on TV, there's people watching. You just don't feel like they are because <laughs> you can't right. see and them. In this, in this case, you can see them. You can hear them. Yep. If a joke works, you know. If a joke does, if it not, does work, not work, you, you know. know. <laughs> uh, you know immediately. There's instant feedback mm-hmm. uh, from, from sort of from that group, and you could almost call it like a focus group, a real-time focus group. Yeah. Uh, the studio audience. You had quite an interesting look on Gutfeld last night. Yes. Dirtbag Deb. The sketches. Yeah, what was that look? So that's a new character that I came up with called Dirtbag Deb. Um, she's an Antifa and, uh, yeah, like that. So I, she's actually coming back tonight. So Dirtbag Dev will be doing another Dirtbag Dev will be interviewing for a job tonight. Um, and what, for people who didn't get to catch the debut of Dirtbag Deb, (laughs) uh, what does Dirtbag Deb look like? Dirtbag Deb looks terrible. She has really dark circles under her eyes because I like smeared mascara under them. Um, and a green blue hair with black tips mm-hmm. and a septum piercing, which is a clip on earring and it is painful. <laughs> oh, on your nose. Yes. Content is pain though. So you do what you gotta well, do. You, it's an amazing the show must go on. Yes. And you know, you're just a team player, right? You're truly an artist at heart and there are sacrifices you make for your art. Yeah. No, Dirtbag, I, I just, we were filming it, and I kind of decided, I'm like, okay, she definitely has bug eyes. She definitely has a twitch. Uh, I think that she's a meth user. Um, and it's just, even, I don't know, like, when I was little, actually, like, the way that I would play is I would make up characters and uh, dress up as these characters and, like, perform these characters just by myself. And it's not something that I ever really knew that I could, like, do until the first char- time I ever did an impression or a character was when I did Elizabeth Warren right before the pandemic. And I kind of just tried by doing it. And I think one thing that people – it's interesting because we are, you know, obviously beating other late-night shows in the ratings. But the wildest thing is we shouldn't even really be compared to them in the first place. We have a staff of 14 people. All, that includes Greg's assistant, right? Uh, but, of course, if you're on a staff that small, Greg's assistant's also, you know, having to do production stuff. She's also, you know, she's in the sketches sometimes. Um, and, you know, Colbert has, like, m- more writers than our entire staff. So, like, today we had the Dirtbag Deb idea. Uh, between <laughs> 11 a.m. and noon, we had to have it written. Uh, 
and filmed on an iPhone. (laughs) So it's it's kind of crazy. Um, You know, we don't have we don't have you know, and this is a wig. The only reason I have the wig is because Keith had a wig. You know, my friend Keith had a wig party for his birthday a few years ago. So that's why I even have the wig. Uh, we don't have like all this, you know, if you watch sketches on, you know, SNL or some of these, they have like obviously costume budgets. They have, oh, big they ones. have, they have coaches to help, you know, you learn characters and all. I, we don't have that. We have iPhones and usually about an hour <laughs> from yeah, writing I, and yeah. When I did the one sketch that I did for yes. you guys, it was even more low budget than I was expecting. Like yeah. the the production values were an iPhone. An yeah. iPhone and like this little microphone and that was it. Like no lighting, nothing. Nope. And that's, you know, that is not exactly what the competition has, right? No. They've got giant budgets and Hollywood writers and big st- although now you guys do have the studio. Like you do kind of have a studio to compete with them. Yes, but it's great. We have we only have two people uh, the Joes, who they're full-time, they write. Um, and then everyone else is also a producer, or me. I also write a segment every day. So they have other jobs. Obviously, I'm on, also on the panel every day. Um, so it's like we all wear a lot of hats. <laughs> Let me, since you brought up Elizabeth Warren, she was on The View earlier. And one of the panelists, the only panelist who was like remotely conservative, asked her a good question, basically challenging her on this whole student debt forgiveness slash cancellation policy, she said, and I'm paraphrasing, to Warren, what do you say to someone like me who went to college, took out loans, and then worked multiple jobs really hard to pay them back? Where do I go for my reimbursement? And Warren didn't even make an effort Mm -mm. to respond to that on substance at all, which I think is telling, right? Because there's a lot of people in that position being like, whoa, I didn't go to college. Why should I be paying off yours? Or I paid mine off, and that was very painful. Or I made a bunch of sacrifices. If people like Warren don't have an answer for that, I think they're in real trouble politically. Like the policy is obviously terrible on the merits, but I think the politics are too. And that exchange, I think, underscores that reality. Yeah, and I just don't. I it, I don't get how they even are getting away with calling it. You know student debt forgiveness or student debt cancellation because it's not what it is. It's forcing someone else to pay for it who had nothing to do with it. Uh, right. And, you know, that's why I didn't go to, to, you know, I got into Columbia, Columbia Journalism School. I didn't go because I was like, okay, this is $80,000 I need to take out. I'm oh, yeah, not, you wrote a whole piece about this, yeah, right? It was yeah, your dream school. Yeah. It's this Ivy League journalism yeah. program. And you said, I am going to sacrifice this dream because I can't afford it and I would can't be afford irresponsible. It. Yep. And you would be the chump. You would be the chump here if this policy goes through. Absolutely, because I had to go through, and I, I did write a, a piece about this. I've written about it a few times. Just I had to go through a lot of really tough things. You know, I had, I did, I decided to learn broadcasting skills for free through internships, and then I waitress. I worked as a cashier, and then I remember when I got a job as a waitress, I was like, okay, now I'm gonna be making big money. I'm gonna make tips too. Like I was so excited, um, and you know, it was really tough for a while. And it's just, you know, it's like, okay, so I'm going to have to pay for someone else's grad school when I couldn't go. And I made that decision because I didn't have the money. And it's just, it's, it's, it's not fair. And all of these people who really want, they're really deeply passionate about, you know, paying for other borrowers debt. They should go ahead and do that then. 
Yeah, go for it. The Set go- up a little GoFundMe thing, yeah, a the, general fund. There's nothing stopping you. It blows my mind how people, I mean, I don't know if they, they just fail to consider any type of solution or any type of, you know, way to go about their cause rather than petitioning the government to force everyone to do it. No one stopped. Then go ahead. You know, like AOC, like you got your Tesla and your French bulldog, like you, you're doing all right, you know, or even na- like Nancy Pelosi, who's, you know, she's very, with in terms of the stock market, her husband just incredibly lucky, I suppose. Uh, she could just auction <laughs> off her freezers and ice cream collection. Yeah. That'd probably pay for four years at Yale somewhere. Go ahead. Nobody's stopping you. Go ahead and send some people some money. But you, it's ridiculous. And it also sends the message to other people. I think that. There's this, I think a lot of people get screwed because they've been fed the lie that continuing your formal education is always worth it. Because when I turned down going to Columbia, everyone told me I was insane. And I was like, okay, but I don't have that money. And if I look at what the entry-level salary of a journalist is, I'm not going to have it after school either. So I, like, I just don't have the dollars. So I just can't yeah. go. And it is sometimes worth it. It is not yes, always it's worth sometimes it. Sometimes worth funneling it. Funneling people but they, into it like it's a one size fits all is just not and, true. And even for undergrad, I made the decision to go to the school that I, I went to Hillsdale, but that's they, I, I got a scholarship because um, I just I, I just there should be a cost benefit analysis. We have a cost benefit analysis with most other things, and there's no cost benefit analysis here, which doesn't make sense. Especially there's so many young people who go to school because. They just feel like they're supposed to. Like that movie, Orange County, I'm a, I love that movie. It was like going to college because that's what you do after high school. Right. And they don't even know what they, they don't even know what they want to get into. So they go and they get a degree in something that is, you know, not, you know, marketable. And or they switch majors a bunch of times and they continue to take out loans. That's not the only way that you can get to where you want to be. Well, and look, I think the, the risk analysis and the cost benefit analysis that you're talking about, we are – Worse and worse at that, I yep. think, in our society. Look yep. at the look at the pandemic yep. and the decisions that were made collectively, especially for children. It's crazy. I do have to ask you this. I'm now curious. In your days as a waitress, were you ever like in a mood when you woke up, just not excited to go, not excited to wait on people, and therefore you showed up to work as dirtbag Deb and did your job? In that character? So actually, um, I don't know if you probably, at my wedding, you definitely met, or you, Blake, who is Cheens' dad. Um, yes. So, you know, obviously, as you can see, we're friends and out very close. He was at my 30-person mm-hmm. wedding. But mm-hmm. uh, we broke up. He broke up with me via text message when I was, like, 22. Um, and then right before, and then, I, and, then, and then I was like, you're not breaking up with me after four years of retirement. I drove to his brother's house, and uh, he broke up with me again. And then I had to go right to my shift at the diner. And I was devastated. I was sobbing the entire time. And I was telling my tables, I'm sorry, my boy, we just broke But I made the most tips that I ever made in any other shift because people felt so bad for me. I was like, I don't you have any just friends. done that every day. Yeah, I and was like, devastated. Just keep track. They'd be like, uh, excuse me, we had you two weeks ago and you said the same thing. Yeah, we laugh, like, we oh, laugh uh, about it oops. now. But, you know, it, like we broke up uh, what, like 10 years ago, 11 years. We were kids, so. Kids, and look at you now, yeah. a famous television star with no degree from Columbia. <laughs> nope, didn't didn't do that. I don't think I would have been able to take any of the entry-level positions that I took, um, you know, if I would have had that, would have been saddled with that kind of debt. Kat Timph is a Fox News contributor, co-host of Gutfeld! Exclamation point, every weeknight at 11 p.m. Eastern time, including tonight. Her podcast is Tyrus and Timph, foxnewspodcasts.com. Kat, always a pleasure. Have a great weekend. You too. 
You deserve it. We'll, and so do you. <laughs> oh, this is just wonderful. And there's so much love and happiness. Yes. But we're up on a break. And we'll take it. And we'll be right back. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Happy hour here on The Guy Benson Show. We are back. I saw this. The Social Security Administration has released the list of the top 10 most popular girls and boys names in America for babies born in 2021. And my first reaction, of course, is how dare they assume the gender of these children? But setting that stupidity aside, let me give you the top 10 boys and girls names in 2021. So these are definitely pandemic babies, by the way. Let's start with boys. Number 10, Theodore. Number 9, Henry. Number 8, Lucas. Number 7, Benjamin. Number 6, William. Number 5, James. Number 4, Elijah. Number 3, Oliver. Number 2, Noah. And the number 1 boy's name in 2021 in America, Liam. The top 10 for girls. Number 10, Harper. Nine, Evelyn, which I think that's making a comeback. Evelyn's like an older generation name, but this is what happens. They rotate through and names come back. So Evelyn is back, apparently. Number eight, Mia. Number seven, Isabella. Number six is Sophia. Five, Ava. Four, Amelia. Three, Charlotte. Two is Emma. And the number one girl's name last year in the United States Olivia. And it's interesting because the top two girls' names, Emma and Olivia, my cousin's name is Emma, my sister's name is Olivia, and my brother is James, which is top five on the boys' side. But those were not top names when they were named those things. Like, Olivia was not a super popular name back in the 90s when my sister was born. I've told the story before that people say, oh, Olivia Benson, that's the character on Law & Order SVU. Was she named after that character? No. My parents did not name their daughter after a sex crimes detective. But James, Olivia, and Emma, some of the top names in the country, and I guess that checks out in my family, although, again, they're all in their 20s and 30s now. So some names just have lasting power, and some of them come in cycles. I'm always curious to see these names. And that's the list for 2021. The Guy Benson Show Happy Hour continues right after this short break. Talking about the issues you care about, Guy Benson. As we continue on this Friday edition of The Guy Benson Show, thank you very much for tuning in. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Earlier in today's program, we caught up with Peter Ducey, Fox News correspondent at the White House. Here's part of my exchange with Peter. There was a story that came out a number of days ago about how the White House press corps beat is not what it used to be. And it was sort of this, you know, sexy, vaunted position that everyone aspired toward in political journalism. And, you know, they were out there saving democracy from Donald Trump or whatever. And there were some very nasty quotes in there. And it's like, you know, it would catapult people to stardom and they'd get book deals and TV deals and all this stuff. But now under the Biden administration, it's just all so boring. 
I read some of the story on the air last week. It's just boring and dull, and Saki's just so great at what she does, and it just kind of feels like a snooze fest. Uh, I wonder what you thought of that piece because uh, it feels kind of more revealing about the people who wrote it or contributed quotes to it than really reflecting on how the actual job has changed. I'm curious what you think. You know, full disclosure, uh, I am quoted in that piece um, by name towards the end as basically saying, and I don't, I remember talking to the reporter, I don't know if he used this part, but I told him, you know, Joe Biden came into office at this time where even people who wouldn't normally pay attention to politics had to, because he's talking about like, can your business open? Can your kid go to school? I, can you be in the delivery room when your baby is born? Stuff like that. And so um, I, I told that reporter that my experience has been that it has not been boring. We have not had any boring days because, you know, his style, the president's style might be different than what people are used to. But the things that are happening that he has a hand in are as impactful as any in in the history of the White House beat uh, that anybody quoted complaining about it could have been covering. Yeah, they just seem kind of bummed that maybe things aren't going so well for the guy most of them all voted for. And they don't have the foil of people that they hate to go after and sort of have this adversarial relationship where it's mutually beneficial and it benefits their career and their profile and they get to sort of lead the resistance from within or whatever. It just seems like uh, their view of what journalism is and what interesting stories are is colored by something other than actual journalistic instincts and newsworthiness, which, again, I think reflects on them. Uh, And there was one news executive saying there aren't really any stars in that briefing room these days. And I was offended on your behalf and Jackie's behalf. For the record, Peter, I see some stars. (laughs) You know, uh, something with a story like that, um, I I would be curious to see uh, who it is that is given the quote. Uh, a lot yep. of the people were there were granted anonymity. So, I, you know, just to better understand, I, I would be curious who said some of these things. Yeah, so would I. Meanwhile, there's going to be, of course, a successor to Jen Psaki at that podium. It's one of her deputies. What can you tell us about the next White House press secretary? Karine Jean-Pierre, she, uh, as Jen Psaki's uh, top lieutenant, has always been very proactive in my experience. You know, she'll reach out um, kind of just to see what we're interested in covering, uh, if we need any help, like getting to somebody at an agency or to understand something that's going on. And so I, my my personal experience with her has been very positive, and hopefully that continues. Peter, there was this exchange yesterday And I know that, again, there were more questions for the White House today about this. But you were pressing Saki because she's still there. I know she's off to become a competitor of ours at another network soon. But she's still, I guess, you know, there officially speaking for the president uh, until I believe it's the 13th. So about a, a week left to go in her tenure. And it deals with the Supreme Court and some of these acts of intimidation against Supreme Court justices over the abortion 
decision that appears to be forthcoming because of the leak that we all saw. The White House would not condemn the leak. I know that question was asked and they kind of sidestepped it. So they didn't have much of a view on that. They viewed that question as a distraction. But what about these left wing groups who are publishing the home addresses of Supreme Court justices with whom they disagree for, in my view, unquestionably the explicit purpose of intimidation and bullying? And you were trying to get Saki to condemn it. I don't really hear a condemnation here in cut one. Listen, do you think the progressive activists that are now planning protests outside some of the justices' houses are extreme. Peaceful protest? No, peaceful protest is not extreme. These activists posted a map with the home addresses of the Supreme Court justices. Is that the kind of thing this president wants? The president's view is that there's a lot of passion, a lot of fear, uh, a lot of uh, sadness from many, many people across this country about what they saw in that leaked document. Uh, we obviously want people's privacy to be respected. We want people to protest peacefully if they want to to protest. You went on to push her a little further, saying some of these justices have young kids. They have neighbors. These are not public figures who are in the neighborhood. Uh, is this something that you guys are comfortable with at the White House, with protesters and agitators and activists showing up in neighborhoods at people's houses? And she said, basically, as long as they keep it peaceful and don't get violent, that's basically the the extent of what she was willing to say. Did I miss something where she finally got around to saying, no, we shouldn't be doxing public officials and going to their private homes? No, never happened. And, uh, you know, we were looking and some of the um, scholars with big Twitter followings started posting about this last night. There is a, a law that prohibits protesters from going to a justice's house if their intention is to try to intimidate them or try to get them to try to interfere with a court proceeding. Well, the White House says that they hope the final Roe v. Wade draft is different than the leaked one. So what would these protesters then be doing with the with the support of the White House? They'd be going trying to correct get the get a different result and obviously you know yeah and so it's almost like uh, it, it is not an explicit endorse I, I don't want to make it sound like i'm endorsing uh, i'm accusing them of endorsing a criminal act that full interview with peter Ducey, white house correspondent at fox news available online guybensonshow.com also part of the podcast which is free of charge on demand every day GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, and wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, the home stretch, supermarket etiquette, a question that I didn't even realize was a thing. We will debate it internally right after this. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch, happy Friday. It's the Guy Benson Show. From our Tony Snow Studios in D.C., thank you for listening. GuyBensonShow.com, our website, podcast, free, every day, on demand, plus bonus Benson on the weekends. Speaking of this weekend, I am guest hosting the Big Saturday Show and the Big Sunday Show on Fox News Channel, Saturday and Sunday, respectively, as you may have gathered from the name of the show. That's 5 p.m. tomorrow and the next day, Fox News Channel. 
We will see you there. So this is an interesting story that we were debating actually multiple times this week. And we finally had time to get to it here on the program. The New York Post writing about a viral video that has sparked an online debate. It's from TikTok, and it deals with supermarket etiquette. You know when you're at the checkout line and you're waiting your turn and the person in front of you has their cart and they are putting their items on that little belt that moves forward and then they scan it and then they bag it on the other side. We've all done this. Yes, this is a universal experience. There are those little divider things, right? Like maybe the size of a ruler. They're usually a little bit thicker than that, made out of plastic, that symbolize like here. This is the line of demarcation between the first person's food and then the next person's food. And I guess I didn't understand that this was so controversial, But I guess people are now fighting each other over whose job it is to put the divider down. Is it once your food has been put on the belt and is moving toward the scanner, then you put down the little plastic divider and the next person can start? Or if you're the next person, do you see that their cart is empty and do you put it down and then start loading up the conveyor belt yourself with your food and your order? And apparently this is quite polarizing. To me, I think the most important thing I can say about this is I don't really care. I don't think that the divider is even necessarily essential in all circumstances. But when it's a very crowded time at the store and there's a lot of food on the belt and you don't want to end up with food you didn't ask for or having someone else take the food that you plunked down there – There is a utility for this thing. So I have used it many, many times. I would say maybe around half of the time at a grocery store, the divider goes down for me personally. And I had to really think about it because I don't really care. I think I've probably had it happen both ways where someone puts it down. I say, okay, that's great. Other times where I put it down. Is there an etiquette? Is there a rule? And I'm not sure there's a great answer to that. I don't think that there is a wrong answer to this. I don't think that one thing is clearly correct and the other thing is rude. Evidently, many people disagree. Like, there are strong, strong views on who should be touching the divider and putting it down and when. So if I had to describe the Benson take on this crucially important issue... I would say more often than not, I would put the divider down as the next person in line. I would see the person was done. I would see that there was a break where there was, let's say, a foot or two of naked conveyor belt where there was a clear break. And just to make sure, I would grab the little plastic divider thing from the slot on the side and put it down there and then start loading in my groceries. And I've never had anyone look at me weird or say anything. That seems perfectly acceptable, if not correct. Now, Dan, our engineer, tells me that he is a, quote, stickler about this. And I don't even know what that means. Dan, what do you mean? So I am very much of the belief that it's the job of the person who is up 
to put the divider down after you're finished. So you have that's saying to the person behind you, "I'm done, and you can go now." And so it's just it's that person's job. And if you don't do it, like if I was behind you and you didn't put the divider, I'd be you know kind of look and be like you know you got to tell me you're done and put the divider there. So you have the opposite view that I have here, which is yeah. look. Is sometimes that happens. Sometimes a stickler like you will be up there. And, you know, so so two a days is up and he's loaded up all his groceries on the belt and he has it in his brain. Okay, I'm done now and I need to signal to the next person that I'm done and it's his turn or her turn. So I'm going to put it down. If you were to take the initiative and do that, I would appreciate that and have no problem with it. However, a lot of people are oblivious. Don't use them at all. I don't want my food getting rung up for the previous person or taken by them. And so if they're not making a move and it's just all sitting there and I want to start putting my food on the conveyor belt and I can see that their cart or their little, you know, shopping basket is empty at that point, I'll grab the thing and put it down and start loading on my food. I mean, is that bad form? No, I mean, but let's be honest, not using the divider just creates chaos. So, I mean, oh, I, you, you have to use generally, the divider. You, you have to build a wall. Okay. <laughs> Walls work. Okay. It's a big, beautiful wall for the food. And I think that you can get away, as I said, without having the divider if it's sort of a slow day and if it's right. very obvious that someone's completely done and you walk up and there's a lot of space in between. There are times where it's not essential, but when there's a ton of food on that machine, you've got to put it down. And if the first person isn't going to do it for me, I'm going to grab it and put it down, and I make no apologies. And, in fact, I'm going to the grocery store after the show today. Now I'm sort of wondering how this is going to go. Am I going to think twice about it? Probably not. Actually, probably not because it matters so little to me. Plus, I often do the self-checkout thing at my local Whole Foods where there's no conveyor belt at all and there's no person in front of you. You wait until the entire station is available to you and you scan everything yourself, which, by the way, for the record, Whole Foods, I don't like. I know it's probably more efficient, but it's annoying. And when I've got produce, for example, I've got to search for it on the little flat screen and I'm typing out the word apple and then they give me 17 type of apples and I have to find the one that I think I remember getting and they say, okay, well, you know how it's now weighed. What kind of bag did you put it in? It's just a, it's a pain in the neck. I would prefer to have someone helping me do it in an expedited way where these are trained professionals. But I'm, I might be in the minority there where people enjoy just controlling the entire process themselves. Wyatt, you almost look like you're itching to weigh in here. There's a lot to unpack. Um, this reminds me of the, the the time we talked about the shopping cart thing. When you go to the to the to the grocery store, and if you don't pick your shopping cart and put it in the little shopping cart oh, area, yeah, then you're a bad person. Yeah, I remember that, that was a fun conversation. But I'm the type of person where if I'm going to the grocery store, I usually use the the self checkout line. I think that's great, so I can bag my own stuff, and someone hasn't touched any of my produce. So that's what I enjoy that. But if I do go up to a conveyor belt. I'm going to put up the divider. I think it's your it's the person who's going up next. So the next it. person up yes. puts the divider down. Correct. So you're with me on this one. Yeah. Oh Dan, you've been outvoted. You and guys here's are crazy. the thing. We're not we're not crazy at all. 
And the thing is, if producer Christine were here, we could actually settle this debate because right now the vote is two to one. And if she were here, her vote would obviously automatically be incorrect, and then we would have our answer. We'd have the result at that point. Christine would vote, and then whatever the opposite was would be right. And that might be with you, Dan. I might benefit from this. I almost – this is weird. I almost can barely picture producer Christine at a grocery store. I just – I feel like it would be overwhelming for her. I wonder if Bobby does the the shopping there. I've actually seen Christine at a grocery store. She came to visit me once at the orchard that I used to work at on the weekends when I was back home. So I actually have seen her at a is grocery store. Is that a store. grocery store? It is, though. They have – it's like a – it's a market. But it is – they have conveyor belts. They have, a pl- like, you know, a bunch of different shelvings for food. It's all fresh. Was so. she overwhelmed? I mean, she- that place is overwhelming. So, yeah, I would be overwhelmed. Okay. Huh. Well, she'll listen to this, I think, on Bonus Benson over the weekends, and you better believe we're going to get a text message in the group chat to her best friends. So we're all looking forward to that, Christine. Safe travels back from the West Coast, Cookie. Have a great weekend, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. The Big Show, Fox News Channel, 5 p.m. tomorrow and Sunday. I'm co-hosting that program. Back here on the radio Monday for more of The Guy Benson Show. Good night and happy weekend from Washington. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.